though Paul had started, or to use modern Christian terminology, though, though Paul had planted many churches, Colossae was not one of the churches that he had planted. Paul did not plant the Colossian church. We know this because in Colossians 2 and verse 1, Paul acknowledges that he had never seen them face to face. Listen as I read that. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. It's most likely, then, that since we know that it wasn't Paul who had planted here, it's most likely that it was Epaphras who was mentioned in Colossians 4.12, which I read a moment ago, who planted the church in Colossae. After all, in Colossians 1 and verse 7, Paul says that the Colossians had first heard the gospel from Epaphras. Listen to this uh, section of verses. Paul is writing about the word of truth, the gospel, in verse 5. He says, which has come to you, and he says in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. See, so he's, t- he's writing to them and saying, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, which indicates that they were unbelievers, and Epaphras came, preached the gospel to them, some believed, and the church at Colossae was born. And so, it is likely that... Epaphras is the man who planted the church in Colossae. Paul, meanwhile, is in Rome at the moment, most likely. He was imprisoned a couple other places, but most likely he wrote Colossians when he was imprisoned in Rome. And so he's in Rome at the moment. And Epaphras also is actually in Rome, ministering to Paul, who is imprisoned. So... Paul is not in Colossae, neither is Epaphras, because Epaphras has temporarily left the church which he planted to go minister to another church leader, namely the Apostle Paul in Rome. So in the book of Colossians, we have two church leaders, Paul and Epaphras, and neither one of them are in Colossae. But we have recorded for us here in Colossians their disposition towards the church in Colossae and their actions on behalf of the church in Colossae, even though they can't be there in person. As I prepare to travel to Canada, God willing, for two months uh, on Thursday of this week, I thought it would be fitting to examine this morning... Paul and Epaphras' dispositions and actions toward the church in Colossae, which they are absent in body from, as Paul says, and draw some applications from this for both you and I as we realize that we are going into a somewhat comparable situation where there is a church and the pastor, even the planting pastor, is gone for a time ministering to another church leader elsewhere. So let's begin, first of all, with the evident love of these leaders for the people in Colossae. Now, which verse will I point you to 
to demonstrate that Paul and Epaphras love the Colossians. You could scan real quick if you're a speed reader and see if you can find it. I didn't find it. There, there is no explicit verse as far as I can tell. He mentions in other places, in other of his letters, his love for the saints. So we know that Paul was a man who loved the saints. But as far as I can tell, he doesn't say it so directly in Colossians. Neither do we find a verse that says that Epaphras loved the Colossians. But we can discern love from actions as well as from words other than I love you, can't we? For example, if a man jumps into a dangerous sea to rescue another who's struggling, can't we discern that there is love there? If a son boards a plane to move to another country and his dad, who is a reserved, quiet, tough man of few words, shows up and hugs him and sheds a little tear and says, take care, son. <laughs> we, can, we can discern love nevertheless, can't we? If a mom tirelessly cares for her kids day in and day out and changes the diapers and cooks and cleans and works hard and she's up late in the night and she's up early in the morning and she perseveres in this until they're grown, we can discern love there in those very actions, right? So in this manner, we see Paul and Epaphras' love for the Colossians on display, even though they don't actually say it in the biblical text. Look first at Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 5, which we read a moment ago, where he says, I rejoice, I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Why would he rejoice at these things unless he loves them and has a vested interest in seeing them flourish? Or unless he's exaggerating. But we'd have to, we'd have to rule out the exaggeration thing because we don't believe that Paul lied to the Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 5, right? So if some random stranger called you and said, I got a job, I was unemployed and then I got a job, we likely, most likely wouldn't say I rejoice. You would, you would be like, okay, well, that's good. That's good for you. But, but rejoice is a stronger word than I approve of this or I think positively of this. I, I think it's appropriate that you got a job or I think it's suitable or, you know, it must be nice for you. Paul doesn't say something like that. He says, I rejoice. I rejoice. So Paul is in Rome feeling joy in his heart that the Colossians have good order and a firm faith in Christ. Now, why would Paul rejoice about that unless he had a vested interest in seeing them flourish, unless he was concerned for them? Now, if a random stranger called you and told you that though they had been unemployed, they got a job, you would just say, oh, well, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm uh, sure you're very glad about that. And you might say, I'm happy for you. But really and truly, Unless you're a really empathetic person, you probably don't care that much. You're, I mean, you're not, you're not mean-spirited, so in a sense, you're happy. But in another sense, it's like, well, what's it to me? Why are you phoning to tell me this? Right? But if, uh, if a loved one, perhaps, who had moved away, let's say, I mean, we talked about a son flying away to live in another country. What if he's going to make a start in the U.S., and he's got 
a uh, working visa and he's going to go to the U.S. and try to make something, uh, make a life for himself there. And he gets off the plane and it doesn't quite go as he hoped and he's really struggling and you see his, he tells you his savings account is being depleted and depleted and, and a few weeks go by and there's a lot of concern and then one night he calls you and says, Dad or Mom, I got a job. Ah, now you're rejoicing. You see? Because you actually care. And, and you hang up the phone and you actually feel joy in your heart because of what is happening to another person. If you don't have a vested interest, you're not really rejoicing. If you do have a vested interest, you are rejoicing. And so Paul couldn't say these things unless he actually had some genuine care and concern for these Colossians. Look at Epaphras now in Colossians 4 and verse 12. It says that he is always struggling on behalf of the Colossians in his prayers so that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I want you to notice that word struggling. He is struggling, or, or the older translation puts it, laboring in his prayers. Now, what kind of prayers does this sound like? Does it sound like Epaphras is just throwing up formal little prayers here and there? Lord, bless the Colossians. Amen. And on with his daily life. Right? You know, every now and then he says, Oh yeah, I remember those guys that I used to pastor. Oh Lord, be with them. You know, well, okay, on with the next activities of the day. Or does it sound like he is earnestly and passionately interceding for these people? Oh Lord, please help Appius as he struggles with chronic pain. Grant him relief. Oh benevolent Father, according to your will. We who love Him, we hate to see Him struggling like this. Always in pain. And in the meantime, would you mature Him in the faith? Help Him to learn how to suffer well. Help Him to rest in Your providence, O oh Lord. And Valentina, help her as she cares for her little ones after the death of her husband, Claudius. Please provide the funds for the church which are necessary for us to continue giving her the support that we've already been offering to her. We know that she is a godly widow, always resting and hoping in you. Be a kind and merciful father to her and continue to protect, to provide for her, O oh Lord. You see the difference? One is, one is just, oh, I'll pray for you. <laughs> We say, and, how, how, and then do we go home and labor in prayer for the person? Or do we just say, Lord, be with Joe. You know, you know, be with Appius. Oh, Lord, help Valentina. And on we go with our life. Or do we labor in prayer? You see, there's a difference between just praying and laboring in prayer. And Colossians 4.12 tells us that Epaphras is laboring in prayer. And this is not Epaphras perhaps boasting Above, beyond, above and beyond what is warranted, say, writing to the Colossians, saying, I'm laboring in my prayers for you. This is Paul, an independent third party, saying, look, I'm observing. Epaphras is laboring in prayer for you. You see, so how hard you got to pray for people before someone observing says, man, I see that that person is really laboring in prayer for another. 
we have the picture here of a man who is not just formally mentioning the Colossians to the Lord, but one who is earnestly interested in their welfare and bringing their faces to remembrance and their specific situations to remembrance before the Father's face. Why would he pray like that unless he loved them? As Paul says, though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. This means, as John Gill said, that his heart was knit unto them. He had the same affection for them and care of them, though he had never seen them with his bodily eyes, as he had care and affection for those whom he had seen. This was true of Paul, of course, but this was true also of Epaphras. Though absent in body, these men were present in spirit, meaning that their hearts were knit unto the Colossians. And they had real meaningful care and affection for them as if they had been in their very presence. So Paul and Epaphras loved the Colossians. And it shows, though they didn't say it, it shows in their concern that the Colossians press on and grow in Christ in spite of their absence. As mentioned a few moments ago, Paul says in Colossians 2.5, I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. By good order, Gill says, he means either their orderly walk and conversation, which is an old way of saying their lifestyle, which becomes the gospel of Christ. In other words, he's either saying that he rejoices that they're living godly lives that are fitting and in keeping with the gospel, and that's what he means by good order. Or, rather, Gill says, the order of their church discipline, they having regular officers, pastors, and deacons ordained among them, who rightly performed their offices and had respect and subjection yielded to them. The ordinances of the gospel were duly administered and constantly attended on. The members of the church were watched over, admonitions given, and censures laid when they were necessary, and everything was done decently and in order. I think, I tend to think, that it was the latter, that Paul was rejoicing to hear how well-ordered this church plant was, which he himself had not planted. He was encouraged to see a congregation that he had not been involved in starting, that he had not been involved in planting, in a well-ordered, flourishing state, even though he himself hadn't contributed one iota to that. You see, Paul had done nothing for the church in Colossae up to this point. But he observes the grace of God at work among them, knowing that it had nothing to do with them. So he can see then the maturity on the part of the Colossians. Paul doesn't need to hold their hand for them to keep steady, so to speak. And he's glad to see that. It's actually evidence that God is not only working through Paul's ministry, but that God is at work elsewhere in the world also. Some men don't rejoice over that. Some men want a hand in everything. They want ministries that they're not in charge of or that they're not responsible for to fail. And they want their church to grow and their church to flourish. And if they hear about a church down the street that has nothing to do with them flourishing, they don't rejoice 
they complain and they find reasons to nitpick at it and criticize it. They want everyone in their church to be and to remain dependent upon them. They want every decision to pass through them. Paul here demonstrates the opposite attitude. Paul is actually glad to see a church that doesn't need him flourishing. It may be well-ordered without him. He's like, wow, here's this church that I had nothing to do with getting going and look at how well-ordered it is. That makes my heart feel happy. I rejoice about that. I'm glad to hear that. Again, this demonstrates maturity on the part of the Colossians. And Paul is glad to see that maturity in an analogous way, as a father is glad when a small child no longer needs a hand to walk. Now, I don't mean to say that Paul is the father and the Colossian church is the child. What, I'm, what I do mean to say is that if we, if we were upset when a child learned to walk, there's something wrong with us. You want to see that kid stunted in his growth and in his development forever? You want to see that kid always crawling and never learning how to walk? What's wrong with you? Of course it's good when a kid starts to walk. You know what, mommy and daddy might feel a little like, oh man, he's not our little baby anymore. But at the same time, the mommy and daddy are rejoicing. Unless there's something wrong with them. Because we're glad to see kids develop. And even if it's not your kid, you're glad to see a kid learn how to walk. There's something that brings a smile to your face. We see these little ones walking around at the back and we feel glad about that. And we remember when they were born and we're glad to watch them grow up in front of us. It's good. It's healthy. Even if they're not our kids, even if we weren't holding their hand, we're glad to see they don't need a hand anymore. Look at how well they're doing. We're happy to see them thrive and flourish. This is what's going on. Paul is glad to see that these Colossians are walking without a hand anymore. They're, they're, and he's happy to see that. It's evident when a child no longer needs a hand. It's evidence of maturity and development. That the child is no longer in infancy. And the good order that Paul observes in the Colossian church indicates to him that they're no longer in infancy. But that there is some maturity and some development which has taken place, which is good and healthy. And that's what he wants for his churches that he planted. So that's what he wants for any other church plant he hears about. Paul loves healthy churches. He sees God's grace at work in them. Though it's apart from him, he rejoices. And Paul is glad to see their, the steadfastness of their faith in Christ also. says he rejoices not only in their good order, but also in the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. Though there were many false teachings in Colossae, some of which are addressed in this letter to the Colossian church, to this point, the Colossians had resisted and refused to drift away or compromise in their faith in Christ Jesus alone. They are holding fast to Jesus, and this gives Paul great joy. Now, Epaphras was in a somewhat different situation from Paul, since he actually was the Colossians' pastor and did have a hand in helping them establish good order and firmness in their faith in Christ. So like Paul, he loves the Colossians, but he loves them in a different way. So 
for example, I think we have some love for the church in Toronto, though we have not, um, uh, many of you have not seen them face to face, yet nevertheless there is love and there is concern for them, sort of like Paul's love for the Colossian church. But when Pastor Chris visits from Toronto to here, he also loves them, but he loves them in a different way. Because though you've never seen them face to face and you're not their pastor, you still love them. But Chris has seen them face to face and Chris is their pastor. So there's, there's still love, but it's a different kind of love. And this is what's going on here. Paul's never seen them face to face, but Paul's heard about them and he loves them. Epaphras has, and Epaphras is their pastor. And here's Epaphras in Rome ministering to Paul. And... Like Paul, he loves the Colossians, but he loves them in a different way. Listen again to Colossians 4.12. Paul writes that Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He is laboring in prayer for them, as discussed earlier, but to what end? First, that they may stand mature. Now, we've all known people who seem to be mature, but it is all a charade. When the pressure's on, they reveal great immaturity. Epaphras is concerned that the Colossian church not only gives the impression of maturity, but that they continue to manifest maturity in this very occasion where maturity is required where he is absent and they have to stand alone without his oversight and guidance and support. After all, what is maturity? Among other things, it is the ability to exercise self-control and discipline without the external support and accountability structures that previously propped you up and without which you couldn't attain the same level. So for example, the child who eats a healthy diet and goes to school every day because his parents supervise him and encourage him and give oversight and give accountability and provide consequences and so on and so forth. That child is not necessarily mature even though they're doing the correct things. Because if you remove the constraints, the external supports and crutches and so on and so forth, pretty soon the child wakes up and eats candy for breakfast, drinks a can of Coke, you know, starts walking to school, but then decides it would be fun to go climb a tree and so on and so forth and on and on it goes to the point where you have a child not doing that which he really ought to do. Why? Because the sufficient... Maturity is not there. Now, fast forward in that child's life to the point where, say for example, he gets on a plane and flies to the U.S. to make a life for himself. Now it's time for him to exercise maturity because there are no external supports. There there is no external accountability beyond merely, say, the police. But they're not going to arrest you for not going to work. They're not going to arrest you for sleeping in and not managing your time well. 
and not working diligently or not eating a healthy diet or whatever. So here you are, a young man or a young woman, alone, far from home, and now it's at you to eat healthy. Now it's at you to go find a job. Now it's at you to go work that job. Now it's at you to do all of these things. And you see, if there is maturity there, you will do these things. If there's not maturity there, you won't do these things. Because it shows that you're, you're still attached to those previous external supports and accountability structures. And those really prop you up. There is no maturity. So, Epaphras wants them, the Colossian church, well, he's gone to show and to continue to show that they can manage themselves without him there. He wants them to stand mature. So not just to be mature on the day when they see him off at the airport. Yes, we'll be fine. We will press on in the Lord and give the appearance of maturity. Right? He wants, well, he's gone. And remember, there's also no WhatsApp. There's no Zoom. Right? So he's just going to leave. And here he is in Rome, laboring in prayer that they will continue to be mature while he's gone. Because he doesn't want it all to fall apart. He doesn't want the wheels to come off while he's in Rome. He wants them to stand mature and do the things that they really should be doing, even though he's not there. He, he, unlike Paul, who is not the dad, so to speak, in the analogy, Epaphras is the dad, so to speak, whose hand they have been holding. And now that he leaves, it's time for them to walk by themselves for a little while at least. Take, take a few steps at least. And so Epaphras prays for this. Like Paul, notice, like Paul, Epaphras' desire is not that they be dependent upon him forever. Notice that. Epaphras' desire is not that he have a hand in everything forever. Epaphras' desire is not that they fall apart while he's gone so that they're like, oh, Epaphras, how, how glad we are to have you back. How much we need you. How central you are, Epaphras. How important you are, Epaphras. Right? Some men would love that, you know. And they would come back from a long trip and be glad if that happened. Ah, well, I'm back now. No need to worry, my children. Now I will run things again. And we'll get back on track. You see, that is far, that mentality is far from the desire both of Paul and both of, and of Epaphras. They want the church to flourish even though they themselves are not able to contribute at this time. They want the church to stand mature even without them. Second, Epaphras prays that they may be fully assured in all the will of God. This means either that they are assured of the will of God... Or that they are assured of their salvation by living in the will of God. In other words, on the one hand, it might mean that the word of God would be a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. And that they would have clarity about what God wants them to do and who he wants them to be. Or on the other hand, it might mean that as they live and remain in the will of God, that they would have assurance that they are indeed new creatures who have experienced the new birth, and that they would not be hesitant and anxious about their state before God, but that they would be fully assured of that because of 
the fruit which the gospel is bearing in their lives. That's a somewhat tangential point to my sermon this morning, so I won't unpack it further than that. But in any case, whatever the case, Epaphras obviously wants them to live according to the will of God. We can discern that at least from the inclusion of that phrase in this verse. So let's leave it with at that point this morning. Epaphras is concerned that the Colossians practically exercise their faith while he's gone. He doesn't just want them to say, we love Jesus, we're holding fast to Jesus, and then depart from the will of God. It's clear, at least, that there's some desire here in Epaphras' prayers. It's one of the two things that that are mentioned, which he prays for, that they would live according to the will of God. Epaphras wants the Colossians to live maturely in the will of God while he's away. So Paul and Epaphras love the Colossians. And therefore, they want to see them holding fast to Christ in a well-ordered church life, each one living out the Christian life in maturity and obedience. The reason that this is what they want for them since they love them, is that this life leads to flourishing. It's not healthy to be in a poorly ordered church. It's not healthy to waver in the faith. It's not healthy... I'm not talking about right and wrong, okay? I'm talking about healthy and sickly. Though it is not right either... The point I'm making right now is it's not, it doesn't tend towards your good. It's not healthy to be in a poorly ordered church. It's not healthy to waver in the faith. It's not healthy to be immature. It's not healthy to be compromised in or confused about your obedience to the will of God. But on the contrary, to be in a well-ordered church, to hold fast to Christ, to exercise maturity on an ongoing basis, to be clear about and obedient to the will of God, this leads to flourishing. Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. We're talking right now in categories of right and wrong. We did something wrong. We deserved punishment. And Jesus, bless His holy name, went to the cross to bear the penalty that we deserve for our sin. But Jesus didn't come to rescue us only from the penalty of our sin. Jesus came so that we might no longer be languishing in it. And languishing we are. It's sin that causes all the problems in your life. You realize that? Notice I didn't say it's your sin. And I didn't say it's specific sins which cause all the problems in your life, but I said sin causes all the problems in your life. Sometimes it's your specific sins that cause problems. Sometimes it's other people's specific sins which cause problems. But sometimes it's just the fact that sin is in the world and that this world is cursed, which is because of sin, which causes problems. Sometimes there's ripple effects. So somebody did something specific, whether it was you or someone else years ago, 
And now there's just ripple effects which are playing out. But sin is at the root actually of all of our non-flourishing. Sin is at the root of all of our languishing. And so Jesus did not just come to bear at Calvary the penalty for our sin and clothe us in His righteousness so that we could be forgiven. Jesus also came so that we could live new lives. And so that we might no longer live lives of languishing, but lives of flourishing. And here I'm not talking about bank accounts and cars. I'm talking about you. Your soul, your heart, you may flourish even in difficult situations. You know that? People may flourish while they're being martyred. Go pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs if you don't believe me and start reading. Some of the accounts, well, all of the accounts are extra biblical, which means they, they're not the authoritative, inspired Word of God. And so there may be inaccuracies in Fox's Book of Martyrs. But no doubt there, are, there is a lot of truth to at least a lot of the stories in there. And read about Christians flourishing even while they die. And if you don't have a category for that, you need to spend some more time in the Scriptures. Because Christians may flourish even while they die. Christians may flourish even while they have cancer and are going through treatments. Christians may flourish in the wake of serious car accidents or other traumas or crises. Jesus came so that we may flourish. He doesn't want us languishing in our sin, but freed merely from its penalty. He wants us freed from its penalty, but also living new lives in which we flourish. Lives in which we hold fast to Christ. Lives in which we stand mature. Lives in which we are clear about and obedient to the will of God. Lives in which we join ourselves to a well-ordered church and live out through the ups and downs our lives in that kind of context. That's where we flourish. Jesus has set up things this way. As the head of his church, this is his design for our lives. The church is his gracious provision for us to this, to this end. Paul knows it and Epaphras knows it, so they pray accordingly. He wants them to flourish. Or pardon me, they want them to flourish in these ways. So this is what's going on here. Paul's rejoicing. Epaphras is praying about a church that they're absent in body from but a church whose hearts they're very much knit together with. Let's consider now a couple of applications. Now, I'm well aware that I am neither Epaphras nor Paul, and that you are not the Colossians, which is why we just spent 35 minutes on exposition before coming to application, because we don't treat the Bible like a diving board where we start there and then jump off it into something else entirely. This is what this passage means in its context. But I hope you can see by this point that there are some applications as we think then, well, what about now? How, what, how should I think about this passage as I leave? How should you think about this passage as your pastor leaves? There are very much, um, there are um, similarities. Though there are different circumstances, there are similarities. There is commonality. I will be absent in body from you, God willing, for the next two months. Rest assured of these things as I go. First, that I love you. 
I, I don't tell you, I don't tell you every week. <laughs> I don't tell you every week, but I do tell you from time to time. But I hope that, I hope that you can see it in the actions and in the words other than I love you, as I talked about earlier in the sermon. But rather than, on this occasion, rather than departing with a stiff upper lip and telling you, take care of yourself, I'll tell you, I love you. Next, I am with you in spirit, which means, as, as Gil said, that my heart is still going to be knit unto you as I go, that our relationship is not severed just because I'm further away. And um, this time I'm actually not even on vacation not even taking a break. Sometimes breaks are necessary and healthy. Sometimes I ask you guys, if possible, to refrain from messaging me unless it's an emergency. And, uh, you know, yeah, from time to time you have to take a break. But this time I'm not even taking a vacation. So feel free to be in touch and um, feel free to shoot me a message and let me know if you have any prayer requests because the next thing is I endeavor, I intend to labor in prayer for you. I'll be honest with you, if somebody was a fly on the wall watching me over the last three years and how I pray for you, I'm not sure that they'd have the same conviction that Paul had that John is really laboring in prayer for you. And that's to my shame. That's a deficiency. That's a sin on my part. A neglect, an omission. And I don't pray for you regularly and consistently as I ought. Many times it is, you know, remember so-and-so or Lord, I commit so-and-so to you and on with it. Many times it's too formal and too cold and um, it ought not to be so. But we're all a work in progress and I'm trying to grow in that area. And it is my intention and my desire to try to labor in prayer for you even while I'm gone. Next, I would love to hear of your good order and firmness of faith in Christ. I would rejoice about that. I don't want the wheels to come off while I'm gone. That wouldn't make me feel happy. If I came back and it was like, oh, Pastor John, we're so glad that you're here. I wouldn't feel a sense of pride welling up in me like, ah, so, so they do need me. I'm essential. I would, I would be, I mean, obviously I would come back and do the work then try to rectify things, but I would actually be kind of sad. And I would say, well, well, we're not quite there yet. We'll keep at it. I would be much happier if I came back and you guys were like, it was great while you were gone. It was awesome. I would be glad if, the, if, if I come back and it's fuller in here. Everyone's like, man, Tevin's preaching. was so good for my soul. Man, I love to hear Jonathan preach. How come those guys don't preach more often? That would make me feel happy, you know. I would rejoice about that. I would be glad to hear that everything's in good order, that people are showing up for church on Sunday, that everything is going smoothly while I'm gone, and that you guys are holding fast to Christ. I want you to stand mature and to be clear about and obedient to the will of God. As I go away, that's what I'm thinking about, and that's what I'm intending to do and to be towards you in terms of my desires and my disposition. As for you, your implied responsibility in view of what we've seen in Colossians is to do these things. So to maintain good order. Among other things, um, as our deacon, Jonathan will be exercising um, 
formal in-person authority in my absence, uh, perhaps even crossing over by necessity into some pastoral type responsibilities and matters as I sometimes cross over into diaconal matters. With me being overseas, Jonathan is staying here as boots on the ground, so to speak, and he'll be the only local office bearer while I'm gone. So bear this in mind, and as, as Hebrews says, let him do this with joy and not with groaning. <laughs> continue, next, continue to attend church regularly. And I might add, con- continue to, or perhaps start to, prioritize the evening service. The evening service is quite a bit smaller now, even before I go. And it hurts my heart to think about it. But I wouldn't be surprised if the evening service dwindled further in my absence. Not only formally in terms of church attendance and official events, but even informally, be a healthy church while I'm gone. Community group, as we mentioned in announcement time, is canceled for July. But I would encourage you to use the extra time informally and try to connect with others, um, even just on an informal basis. As I said in the announcement time, you're not restricted to getting together with brothers and sisters in Christ to those formal programs of the church. Like, well, we, how could we get together? It's not community group. Well, just phone someone and say, hey, would you like to come to our house for dinner on Wednesday night or Tuesday night or whatever? You know, would you like to meet up on Saturday or whatever? Continue to be a healthy church. Some of these things are ways of saying, stand mature. There's that saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Okay, that only happens happens when there's immaturity. Right? When the parents go out of town for the weekend, or out of the country, I guess, in in, uh, Barbadian context. I remember... One time I drove home to my parents' house when I was living in another city. They were gone for the weekend. And I was surprised when I pulled up to see several cars in the driveway. Well, <laughs> my little brother, who you also heard about last weekend, had decided to have a party. Well, they were gone. And this was not like the get-together and play dominoes and checkers kind of party. This was like, I walk in the house and there's like cases of beer and big bottles of liquor. (laughs) Needless to say, my parents would not have approved. This This is the, when the cat's away, the mice will play principle. And there was not, at that time in his life, not the sufficient maturity to manage a weekend with the house to himself. When the sufficient maturity is there, It matters not whether the external supports are there or not. When the sufficient maturity is there, you don't need anyone to tell you, don't eat candy for breakfast. When the sufficient maturity is there, you don't need someone to wake you up in the morning because you can set an alarm clock and you can get to work. If if your spouse travels, you can still handle life if the sufficient maturity is there. I'll just tell you one other funny story that just came to mind. We were in the church in Toronto. I won't call names on this one, though. But we were, we were in church in Toronto, and we were waiting for the evening service in which there was supposed to be scheduled a guest preacher. And Pastor Chris was away. 
and we were waiting for this guest preacher and the service started at 6 and 10 to 6, no sign of him. 5 to 6, no sign of him. 6 o'clock, no sign of him. So of course, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, I guess this is probably going to default to me if he doesn't show up. So we waited, started the service 5 or 10 minutes late, still no sign of him. Sung the first couple songs, no sign of him. So I'm basically like, okay, I'm preaching tonight. All of a sudden, in he comes. Well, it was the middle of the service, so obviously we didn't really have a chance to talk to him. We just got everything ready. And when he stood up to preach, he said, first of all, I apologize for being late. He said, my wife's away and I'm without responsible adult supervision at home. <laughs> Which, of course, we all chuckled about. But I mean, that might happen from time to time. But if, if that was the actual case, that you literally can't get to work on time, you literally can't eat properly, you literally can't just handle life, if your spouse is away, if your parents are away, you can't continue to follow the rules and do the things which you ought to be doing if someone else is not looking over your shoulder, then there's a maturity problem, right? If you need somebody to like phone you and give you prompts about this and that because you're, you're not able to do these things, there's a maturity problem. Now, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you can't make use of your spouse to wake you up. You can't, you can't get someone to give you a reminder. You can't ask someone to text you and to send you a message. I'm not saying that it's not harder when your spouse travels, etc., etc. It's okay to use um, helps, props, other people, structures. Accountability is a great thing. It helps sometimes to have someone look over your shoulder, double check your work, etc., etc. What I'm saying is when those things are removed and you absolutely fall on your face, and there's just no hope, even when it's anticipated and predictable that that support won't be there and you just can't do it, that's when there's a maturity problem. So, this is what I would say. Think to yourself, are the things that Pastor John wants me to do, are they the will of God? Or are they not the will of God? And if they are the will of God, then the presence or the absence of the pastor should make no difference. Why would people do the will of God when the pastor tells them to do the will of God and not do the will of God when the pastor is not there to supervise them? That makes no sense. So I would just encourage you to stand mature, to hold fast to Christ, to maintain good order, and to be clear about and obedient to the will of God even while I'm gone. And to hear these things would, be, would bring me great joy. And I, as I said, I intend to labor in prayer to that end. Look, you're going to be fine. It's going to be really no problem. I'm, I'm confident of that. And even if there are some struggles and some difficulties, it's two months. It's not, it's not a big deal. It's not the end of the world. God willing, I'll be back in a couple of months. In the meantime, let's just look to God's Word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And let's continue to just look to God's grace. Grace has brought us safe thus far. Grace will lead us home. Which means that grace, there will be grace every step of the way. So there will be grace every Sunday and every intervening day for the next two months, even while I'm gone. So let's look to this grace, lean into this grace, trust this grace. Hold fast to Christ. 
maintain good order, live maturely, stand maturely, and be clear about and obedient to the will of God in these intervening couple of months.